You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. Today on the show, I'm chatting with Dr. Judd Brewer. Dr. Judd is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. His TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has over 16 million views on YouTube. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center, and he's also the Associate Professor at Brown University, as well as the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Cherokee. His new book is called Unwinding Anxiety. Whilst we're facing a health pandemic at the moment, we're also facing an epidemic of mental health. There's a lot of anxiety, worry and stress, and understandably so. And it was a real pleasure to speak with Dr. Judd about what we can do to reduce our feelings of anxiety and stress in these uncertain times. I hope that you enjoy this much-needed conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. Judd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Obviously, today we're discussing your latest book, Unwinding Anxiety. Um, but it, what's interesting to me is that even before COVID, um, there seemed like there was an epidemic of a mental health crisis. Um, you know, you mentioned in the book that you had your own struggles with panic attacks and anxiety. You just sort of touched on them, but there. Could you share details of what dealing with those were like? <laughs> yes. I started getting panic attacks in residency. And at that time, I'd been meditating for about 10 years. So when I started um, meditating, you know, I learned some techniques and some tools to use to be able to work with, uh, with anxiety myself. So I remember I'd wake up from the dead asleep in the middle of the night with a big old panic attack. Uh, and I remember waking up, having the panic attack. And then, you know, because I was in residency, I was studying all of this stuff. I'd go down the checklist of all the symptoms. I'm like, check, 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 check. Oh yeah, I just had a panic attack. <laughs> Yet I can, I can say this now um, because of my, my strong meditation training at the time, I actually would automatically kick those tools right in to be able to note the sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, and not have that panic attack lead to more things. So I, I had a number of panic attacks, but the thing that shifting from a panic attack to panic disorder is basically when you start panicking about being panicked in the future, <laughs> right? When you, you get anxious about being anxious. So I could notice that and say, oh, that was a panic attack and then just let it go. You know, not that it made it any less crazy. Like I really felt like I was going to die and I couldn't breathe and all this stuff. But, you know, I would note it as a panic attack, uh, go through the checklist, and then I would go back to sleep. <laughs> Probably because I was also sleep deprived at the time. But, you know, the idea was I, I started to see firsthand how some of the things I was doing personally could actually help with my own panic attacks. And then, you know, 10 years later, started applying that in my own research in my own clinic. I love the idea of you going to sleep with like a poster of the DSM-5 on your wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you have a chapter in the book as anxiety, go, uh, anxiety goes viral. Um, so before, obviously, we delve in further and we get into the mechanics of it, you know, how big of a crisis is anxiety right now in the modern world? Well, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating by saying it is the biggest mental health crisis that we have right now. You know, anxiety disorders are the most prevalent, were the most prevalent before COVID even hit. And with all the uncertainty that comes with a new pandemic, you know, where we haven't had previous experience with it, 
the, I think a recent study that I saw was that one in five people that had get, been recently diagnosed with COVID were now being diagnosed with a mental health disorder. And the pr primary one for that was anxiety. And on top of that, just in general, you know, the prevalence of anxiety has gone up tremendously. I think it was 250% in one study that I saw. So not only is it the leading, you know, mental health issue, uh, you know, when you look across the lifetime, it also has ramped up tremendously uh, over the last year. What is driving it in the modern world? But obviously, if we take COVID out of it, what are some things in the modern world that you're driving it? Yes, one of the driving forces, you can think of our brains as these really well-designed survival mechanisms, right? And so the idea is that they, are, they have these basic learning processes to help us find food and avoid danger, okay? Positive and negative reinforcement, basically. These things are relatively simple, three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So for example, if we go out on the savanna looking for food, you know, our ancient ancestors, and we found food, we would, you know, the stomach would send our dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember where this food is so you can come find it again. Same thing would be true if we we're out there surveying for danger as we're looking for food. If we saw the proverbial saber-toothed tiger, we could learn to run away, which, and the reward there would be to survive, right? And then we'd remember, don't go back to that part of the savannah. It's dangerous, okay? So you can think of fear-based learning as very helpful, you know, it helps us survive. In modern day, that applies to things like crossing the street, you know? So we learned to cross the street as a kid. We seem to have forgotten that with our weapons of mass distraction, you know, our phones. And so actually pedestrian accidents have gone up a lot since the iPhone or the, since the smartphone was introduced. So we can relearn at, even as adults in modern age uh, to look both ways before crossing the street, right? So that fear-based fear learning is still at play in modern day. Yet when you pair that with, well, let's just say there's a, the newest part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex evolved for thinking and planning. Yet that needs accurate information and it generally needs precedent uh, to be able to project into the future. So we take what happened in the past, we project that into the future and say, we, we're gonna predict that, you know, this is gonna be the same or different or whatever. The problem with something new, like a pandemic, is that we don't have any, you know, we've never had precedent for this before, but even taking that aside, you know, so that's where things have ramped up, but that be that aside, there still is a lot of uncertainty. And with a rapidly changing world, political uncertainty, environmental uncertainty, uh, economic uncertainty, these things, whether they were, you know, much less uncertain in the past, who knows? Because, you know, I, I'm only alive in, in this, you know, in, in these past, you know, four and a half decades or whatever. But let's say that uh, job security, people in the 1950s used to work for the same company their whole life and they get a pension and there was a lot of security. Nowadays, I don't know how many numbers of jobs people are expected to have in their lifetimes, but let's just say job turnover is much higher now. So there's uncertainty in the, in the economic or in just somebody's financial well-being. So with all of that uncertainty, think of fear, you know, oh no, I'm going to lose my job, plus uncertainty equals anxiety. And so pandemic or not, this is something that's pervasive. And the more uncertainty we have, uh, the more anxiety develops. Ironically, the, this learning mechanism our, uh, in our brain, you know, goes offline. We can't think and plan when we're anxious or, you know, the extreme of anxiety is panic. Yes. And I'm really interested to know in that equation, where does social media fit into this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've learned a lot about avoiding catching physical contagions like a virus by social distancing and washing our hands and wearing face masks and things like that. Social media is very interesting because there's this thing called social contagion where you can spread affect or emotion from one person to another. And that knows no boundaries. You know, you can <laughs> sneeze on somebody else's brain from anywhere in the world. <laughs> so, so think of, you know, people go on social media to try to get information. That's what our survival brain is trying to do. Yet when we go on social media to get information, what we get is a bunch of, you know, well-intentioned, but often misinformed views or freak outs or whatever. And it's just like, we're walking through a, a line of sneezes every time we scroll through our social media feed, you know, it's like sneeze, <laughs> sneeze, sneeze. We're bound to catch something at some point. 
Yes, yes, that's really interesting. We're going to come back to the fear-based uh, learning in a bit, but I would love to touch on, because I remember reading some time ago that um, brain studies of depression show that when we're depressed, um, this you know could be an Instagram meme, but I, this is where I read it, that it said that certain regions in the brain shrink during periods of of chronic depression i wonder what happens to our physiology during say months or years of being anxious Mm -hmm. we do know that you can think of anxiety as the slow burn where when our you know when our physiology is constantly ramped up in that fight or flight response so that response is tremendously adaptive in the moment but it's Mm -hmm. set up to stop you know after danger is over this is why if you've ever uh, seen a dog kind of shake after after it's been stressed out, it's like releasing its stress or, you know, I think zebras jump and kick or something like that after they've been chased by the lion. Yeah. And there's there's their adaptive physiologic response to say, okay, danger over, let's shake that, literally shake that off and let's move on. Wouldn't it be great if humans were as good <laughs> as these other animals at shaking things <laughs> off and moving on? So not only do we not shake things off, but we take all of those, you know, that uncertainty and our planning brain starts thinking of all the worst case scenarios. What if this, what if that, what is this, what if that? And so we create our own long-term, you know, danger where there is no danger per se, you know, there's no bus bearing down on us yet that keeps our physiology ramped up and, you know, our, our, our whole catecholamine system and, you know, basically our sympathetic nervous system is constantly working and that can lead to a host of downstream long-term chronic issues, you know, just uh, everything from hypertension to, um, you know, problems with our, they're just they're a host of problems yeah, that come from that physiologically. This, this is really interesting. And you give a great example there. So obviously the fight or flight response system, which you talk about, in say the savannah, if a hyena sees a lion, his flight or flight response kicks in and it just runs away. But obviously in the modern world, I mean, what happens if say we're in a situation where it's a toxic coworker and our fight or flight response is kicked in all the time? What happens in a situation like that? You know, that's a great scenario. I hadn't thought about that. The hyena is at the cubicle next to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think one thing there, so obviously our natural response, and I'm sure a lot of people feel this and can relate to this, is to run. You know, mm. so we we do all of those things like ignore, you know, uh, vent to our friends and venting, it turns out is not particularly <laughs> adaptive in the long term. Uh, it feels good, but it actually can keep us ruminating about the thoughts and, you know, and how, how bad the situation is. So what we need to what we can do is we can think of this as the next evolutionary cycle, let's say mentally, which is to see that our old brains are still kicking in know how our old brains work and learn to work with them so that we can see the the proverbial hyena as you know unless they're literally poisoning our coffee uh, <laughs> you know they're hopefully they're not um you know it just seems toxic and so we get we have to learn to work with that situation and not let their toxicity actually not take on their toxicity not easy but definitely doable that's interesting. And I always love to do these interviews in like a problem um, solution. So obviously, so right now we're into the problem. So we talked, we touched on earlier how uh, there is an evolutionary reason behind anxiety. As you say, that it, it did definitely serve as a purpose before. Um, I, is it just the case that this has just completely got lost in the modern world that what it was once designed for is no longer needed right now? Well, here, I think I would make a distinction between the fight or flight response, which happens actually faster than our our cognitive processing. You know, so for example, if we step out into the street and we jump back, that's our fight or flight response that that happens or, you know, on such a level that we then see the bust almost hit us and then we freak out, right? Yeah. So you can think of, it's almost like three levels. So the, the, the instinctual jumping back, then the catecholamine surging through our system and, you know, de- uh, 
making our blood vessels get smaller and, you know, shunting blood and all of this so that we can run if needed. But even that piece, you know, if we do need to run, we tend to run and then freak out afterwards. So I think of the third stage as where anxiety and stress come in. And I wouldn't say, I don't think there's any evidence that I have found yet. And I've looked for this, especially in writing this book for anxiety itself being adaptive. What it is, it may be a maladaptive mechanism that is coming at the, on the heels of this, this thinking and planning part of our brain, you know, that, that isn't designed for things like fake news. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> if we saw the hyena or we saw the saber tooth tiger, that was real. We didn't have to look at that and go, is that a deep fake? You know, like, is, <laughs> is that thing actually real? Whereas, whereas in modern day with, with all of this stuff that we have, you know, with misinformation or even intentional disinformation, there's a lot that we don't really you know, we're, we're not, we're not able to, we're not naturally uh, evolved to process yet. So here I would say that anxiety piece, you know, spinning out fear into the future may not be very adapted. And there actually, there was this, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Yerkes Dodson law. I wrote about it a little bit in my book. Yeah. Yeah. So we could certainly, you know, well, the idea there is that these, these researchers back in 1908 did this study with Japanese dancing mice and they found that if they were, um, if they stressed them, if they got them to be a little bit um, the physiologic arousal, if they got their physiology ramped up a little bit, that they did better in you know, some maze or some some tests that they had uh, for the mouse. But if they did, if they really got their physiology aroused, that they they kind of shut down. Uh, so back in the fifties, there was a, a person who just gave a symposium talk where he postulated that this could apply to anxiety as well. And then one of his former graduate students, uh, so this was Peter Sellier, I, I believe, who had given the, you know, said, well, maybe this could apply to anxiety. One of his former graduate students took that and ran with it and like basically did another rat study or something where he held rats heads under the water to you know, freak them out a little bit and found that they swam less quickly you know, if they held their heads underwater for a while. You know, I don't know if he controlled for them like just trying to catch their breath <laughs> or whatever afterwards. But this, uh, this became this Yerkes Dodson law where these two researchers, Japanese dancing mice in 1908, Yerkes and Dodson, this became this law that anxiety had this inverted U-shaped curve where a little bit of anxiety was helpful for people, a lot, not so much, you know, where, where you decrease performance. Yet there is no, I think it was 4% of papers actually supported that and 45% or some, you know, huge percentage of papers showed a very clear inverse relationship between anxiety and performance. And I don't know anybody that, you know, given the choice between being totally calm and collected and having their thinking brain online versus being anxious is going to perform better when they're anxious, you know? So I think it just could be this, this uh, misconception that, that makes a lot, you know, people want to think, oh yes, my anxiety is doing, is helping me as compared to thinking, oh man, this anxiety is probably not that helpful. (laughs) This, this is a super interesting point because I feel like today, we live in a, a burnout culture, a kind of hustle porn culture, which to me, I mean, it sounds like exactly what I'm saying. It's like this culture that wants people to be working 12, 14, 16 hour days all the time. But mm-hmm. from what you say, Blair, it sounds like that's clearly not optimal for performance being in this heightened state of anxiety all the time. Nobody has shown that it actually truly is helpful, you know, that anxiety for people is helpful. You know, it's a long way to go from Japanese dancing mice that are, I think they shocked them or something like that, you know, to, to humans actually performing better. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because one narrative I've had anyway, doing postgraduate work and, and other things is that I tell myself, you know, that for some reason I need to kind of suffer to get stuff done. I need to, you know, burn the, the midnight aisle. Is this just like an unhelpful belief, which I'm telling myself? You would have to do the parallel experiment where you have to clone yourself and, and you know, and, and be stressed versus not stressed. But the short answer is yes. I, I don't see any, any benefit to being stressed and anxious. And in fact, it's kind of like um, driving our car in first gear. You know, we use a lot of fuel, we burn out the engine, but it doesn't actually get us down the highway. You know, it's, it's good enough. It's helpful to get us on the highway, but then we need to shift into second and third gears to actually be able to, to do the long haul. So yeah, 
I, 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 <laughs> I don't think it's helpful at all. <laughs> it definitely doesn't feel helpful. So I would love to sort of touch on, um, we've kind of touched on anxiety being maladaptive. Um, in the book, you make the differentiation between fear and anxiety. Is fear adaptive? Like I have a fear of, say, failing exams or a podcast going by the old, these things. Is that an adaptive response? Fear is adaptive when there is actual danger. Okay. So that's the critical differentiation here. So being afraid that we're going to fail a test isn't going to necessarily help us score well on the test. And in fact, if we go into the test freaking out, like, oh no, I don't know anything. We're less likely to do well on the test than going yes. in, you know, calm and collected and, and confident, you know, that we'll do our best. This is, this is super, super interesting stuff. So in the book, you say something, which I loved. You said, you have scienced the shit out of anxiety, <laughs> a phrase which I absolutely adored. So can we jump into the link between anxiety and bad habits? Yes. And first, I want to give a nod to whoever wrote the, <laughs> the script for the movie, The Martian, because you know, I, when I watched that movie and Matt Damon, you know, gets lost, you know, stuck on Mars and he's like, I'm going to science the shit out of this for it to help him survive. It just it's rang so true. I was like, oh, wow, I wish everybody <laughs> approached life this way. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. So ask your question again, because I already I got lost. Uh, let's have a look. So you said you're going to science the shit out of anxiety. Um, what's the link between anxiety and bad habits? Oh, yes. And we're actually seeing this even in modern day where, you know, whether it's pre-COVID or post-COVID or during COVID. So all, all these memes emerged during COVID around like the, you know, the quarantine 15 where people are gaining weight or there were studies <laughs> showing that people started drinking alcohol a lot more. Uh, so when it's, or, you know, I think Netflix has done tremendously well. <laughs> you know? yes. So if you think about it, if you go back to that negative reinforcement habit loop, you know, trigger behavior reward, if the trigger is anxiety, then the behavior might be something that we do to avoid that anxiety. And then the reward is that we feel a little bit better. Okay. So for example, I, I wrote about one of my patients, my clinic patients in my book who was referred to me for anxiety. And, you know, so we mapped out some of his anxiety habit loops. I sent him home to work on them. And this gentleman was about 180 pounds overweight. He was very overweight. Uh, he came back two weeks later. And he, the first thing he said to me was, oh, I lost 15 pounds. And I looked at him kind of quizzically because we hadn't even talked about weight loss yet. I was going to wait for that. And he said, you know, I was mapping out my habit loops and I realized that anxiety was triggering me to stress eat. And that stress eating was actually not getting me anything. And so I stopped doing it. He went on to lose over a hundred pounds and it would become physiologically much healthier. His you know, high blood pressure went away and all these other things. But the, I think what that says, that's just an example of our natural you know, responses are to get away from something that's unpleasant. And in modern day, there are a lot of things that can distract us, whether and make us feel better. So, for example, I'm thinking of one of my clinic patients, a number of my clinic patients who've turned to drinking alcohol in a way to work with, work with, basically uh, deal with their anxiety. And so they've become, you know, they've had now they have alcohol use disorder in addition to anxiety because it's it doesn't really fix it. So our brains are naturally inclined to do whatever helps, and there are some quick fixes like drinking, like overeating, like scrolling on social media, which actually, you know, all these things actually, they might give us some temporary distraction or make us feel a little bit better for the moment, but they, they ultimately keep that old anxiety habit loop going and add habit loops on top of it, you know, where we start stress eating or we start scrolling on, on social media or binging on Netflix. Yeah, this is really interesting. And I really do have sympathy because I mean, in the, the modern world, I mean, it, the, the chips really do seem stacked against us, you know, it, where mm -hmm. we can go and grab a fast food meal in a mat room. And it's not even have to leave our house. We don't have to walk anymore. We can get an Uber. Right. Pornography, TikTok, social media, all these things are just on hand all the time, aren't they? They are. They are. The immediate access makes a huge difference. You know, think of somebody back in the 1800s. You know, if they had, if they were stressed out, uh, they couldn't just 
go and, you know, binge shop on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) They had to actually deal with it, uh, whether it was within their little household or even in their community, you know, small villages. uh, And so, and so they actually got, probably got a lot of family and community support because they, it was a very different time back then, but importantly, they didn't have these weapons of mass distraction, you know, where we, where we basically are constantly connected to the internet. Yeah, definitely, man. So we talked there about how um, anxiety can get reinforced by uh, what you call a, a sort of worry habit loop. Is, is anxiety then, is, is it a habit? So I would say anxiety, which is, you know, a feeling, I think the definition is a feeling of nervousness or unease, uh, Mm. typically about, you know, some uncertain, something with an uncertain outcome. So you can think of anxiety as the feeling, the physical feelings that we have and worry is so that feeling of worry, nervousness or worry, that worry can not only be a feeling, but it can also be a verb worrying where we start Mm. to worry. And that worrying piece uh, comes back as a mental behavior. Often people think of behaviors as eating or drinking or smoking or whatever, but actually a behavior can also be worrying itself or thinking. You know, if we have a repetitive thinking pattern, for example, with depression, rumination is a repetitive thinking pattern, typically about the past with anxiety it's often described as perseveration where it's a repetitive thinking pattern where we're worrying about the future. So if you pair, if you have those unpleasant feelings of anxiety, there's the trigger, the mental behavior is worry, and then the result. So a lot of this is research going back to the 1980s. Thomas Borkovec and others uh, suggested that anxiety can be negatively reinforced through the mental behavior of worry. And what they hypothesized, and I think this was borne out by research later on was that it gave two things. One is it distracted people from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety. Uh, And two, it gave them a a sense of control, you know, because ironically worrying doesn't actually help us control things and makes things worse because we can't think well, but at least we're doing something because we're worried. You know, if our kids are out late on a, you know, at night with their friends, we're going to worry until they get home. That worrying didn't keep them safe but at least we felt like we're doing something as a parent, say. Yes, this is really interesting. So I want to hold your worry habit loop up by here. So we got trigger behavior, result or reward. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to really sort of um, delve into this. So is this kind of linked to the cognitive behavioral therapy model that sort of if you change your habits, you sort of change um, your sort of self-image? Is this linked to, to cognitive behavioral therapy? So cognitive behavioral therapy, at least in the United States, is probably the gold standard treatment right now as a behavioral therapy for anxiety, you know, in, mm. in addition to medications. The, and what CBT does, you know, I think of the, when I was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy in residency, it was kind of catch it, check it, change it, right? Yes. So if you catch a cognition that is aberrant or something that's not helpful, right, like worrying, you can check to see if it's true, right? So is, is my child really going to get in a car accident? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and, then, and then the idea is to change the cognition to something more adaptive. So it's gold standard. Yet one, one thing that's um, challenging here is that, that the research has shown that this uh, requires the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain to use to, to u- utilize cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, because it's our cognition, it's our thinking part of our brain. And that's the part of the brain go- that goes offline when we're anxious or stressed. Mm-hmm. So there could be this problem where for a subset of people, it works tremendously well, you know, catch it, check it, change it. For a lot of folks, in- including a lot of my patients, it's a real struggle for them. You know, they can see the cognition, but at- <laughs> when they see it, they start to freak out even more and it's just hard to do anything about it at that point and, and can even move them into panic. So here I have to say, this was something that I was struggling with as a, as a clinician, you know, about uh, when I started clinical practice, you know, I had medications and I have cognitive behavioral therapy as the, as the two things that I could prescribe for folks and medications, just as an example, the gold standard treatment 
it, our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other antidepressants. You know, they were originally devised or, or used for depression and found to be somewhat useful for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yet they're, they are somewhat useful. There's this uh, quick and dirty term called number needed to treat where it gives a clinician a basic idea of how effective a treatment is. So for example, with anti, these gold standard anti-anxiety medications, the number needed to treat is 5.15. So you have to treat just over five people before one person shows significant benefit or significant wow. reduction in their symptoms. So you're basically playing the lottery there. You know, I treat five people and one of my patients does better with medication. With cognitive behavioral therapy, about 50% of people respond. So it's not significant response, it's just respond according to one study that I've seen. So again, you know, that's like basically going at chance here. And I started really struggling with helping my patients because, you know, I don't want to treat five patients and have only one benefit. What about the other four, you know? (laughs) So I actually had this light bulb moment when somebody we were testing. So I was developing app-based mindfulness training programs. I was doing clinical studies with these. We were getting really good results. So our first, this is an in-person study, but we, we did a study with smoking cessation. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We did a study. Well, I didn't do this, lead the study, but there was a study at UCSF uh, that's, that did a study of our, uh, with this eat right now app, which is mindfulness training for eating, got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And somebody who was using one of those programs said, you know, I, I realized that anxiety is a big trigger for me to eat, kind of like my patient that I talked about and asked, hey, can you develop a program for anxiety? And I hadn't really thought about it, but I had this light bulb moment where I was thinking, oh, you know, after looking through the literature, I realized that anxiety can be negatively reinforced through worry. And I was thinking, wow, can we treat anxiety like a habit? And then, so we developed this actually an unwinding anxiety app that we started testing to see if it was actually true. You know, could we actually help people? And long story short, you know, we did a study with anxious physicians. We got 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. We did a randomized control trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety. And with that one, we could calculate the number needed to treat. Are you ready for this? Go on. 1.6. 1.6. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so we could, we could actually approach anxiety through its core behavioral and mental mechanisms, right. Around worry, we could show huge efficacy and we could also measure mechanism. And lo and behold, we are finding that people in our mindfulness group, they were increasing their ability to not react to emotionally, right. To not get caught up in their anxiety that was decreasing worry. And in turn, that decreased worry mediated a reduction in anxiety. So we were even able to determine the mechanism underlying this, this large effect that we were seeing. Man, that is, that is insane. So I would love to jump into this sort of solution part of anxiety. We've, we've really covered a lot here. So what would be some of the first parts of beginning to unwind anxiety? The way I think about this, and I've actually lined the book up this way, and our, our Unwinding Anxiety app is like this as well, but um, people don't really, you know, if they can read the book, they can use the app, but <laughs> they can listen to your podcast and get the three elements. So the first element is just really being able to see our habit loops, okay? So what I do with my patients when they first come in the door is I just sit down with them and I help them map out. I first teach them, you know, in 30 seconds, I say, well, this is how habit loops are formed, trigger behavior result. Can we, do you have any of these surrounding whatever the issue is? So with my patient that I mentioned, he talked about that he would go on the highway and he would be driving in his car and he felt like he was quote in a speeding bullet, end quote. And he said he would start to freak out that he would get in a car accident. He never got in a car accident, but he would start to freak out that he would. So he started avoiding driving on the highway. So his trigger was thinking about getting in a car accident. His behavior would be to avoid driving on the highway. And then the results or the reward was that he didn't have to have those deal with those negative thoughts, right? So that's what I do with anybody. And anybody can do this is just to map out these habit loops. What's my trigger? What's my behavior? And what's the result of this? That's step one. Or in the book, we talk about three gears, you know, because I grew up riding a bicycle. You, that, or, a, you know, for a car to get on the highway, you start it out in first gear to get you going. Okay. 
So anybody can do that. And a lot of folks, you know, takes literally took with this gentleman, it took 30 seconds. A lot of my patients, they have these aha moments because they hadn't really noticed that part, how their mind worked. You know, mm-hmm. their mind was a black box. They just knew they were anxious or they knew they drank or they knew they whatever. This isn't about going back into their childhood and, you know, and all that. <laughs> they don't need to, you know, because their childhood's in the past. What they're doing right now in the present is they're, <laughs> they're yes. stuck in a habit loop, right? So, you know, as a psychiatrist, it's, you know, it's not like, oh, it's terrible to talk about the past, but I also don't find it that helpful. Um, you know, so it can have some, that people can have insights and all this, but the insights don't necessarily change the habits that they have now. So the second step or the second gear, as we get momentum going and shift into second gear, and this part, I just absolutely love is really tapping into our brain's reward circuitry right? So if habit formation is the strongest learning mechanism known in all, you know, this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. If this is the strongest one, why are we trying to use the weakest part of our brain to think our way out of anxiety? You know, if we could just tell ourselves not to be anxious, I would happily find another job. (laughs) (laughs) There's this great, uh, you should check this out. There's this great, uh, um, who's the comedian? Uh, uh, oh, it was from the 1970s. Uh, oh, it, it'll come to me in a second, but he had this skit called Just Stop It. And basically this woman comes into his, this therapist's office and she says, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. And he says, you know, I'm going to charge you $5 for the first five minutes and then everything else is free because you won't need it. And he basically says, she, she says, oh, he says, okay, what's the problem? She says, fear. And he says, just stop it, <laughs> you know, and, and basically, you know, that's his whole thing, right? So if that worked, he, you know, we would, we would, therapy would look very different. Let's just say treatment would look very different. So our thinking brains don't work. Why not tap into the feeling, you know, you think of our thinking brains don't hold a candle to our feeling bodies, right? And so those urges, those, they, they drive us to get rid of our anxiety as quickly as possible, which is why we stress eat and we drink and we smoke and we do all these things. So why not tap into that really, really strong neural mechanism? And so I remember um, having this idea to, uh, I was getting on an airplane to go to a conference or something, and I was offered some airplane food. And I remember doing this mental simulation thinking to what would this be like if I ate this? And I was like, <laughs> you know, no, thanks. I don't want it. That, you know, it just didn't look very appetizing. And I realized that that actually was a personification of what uh, these two researchers were Scorler and Wagner back in the 1970s, they came up with this reward value model where they said, basically we develop habits through our, our brains learning how rewarding a behavior is. And then we're just going to do it habitually. So we don't have to keep relearning how rewarding the behavior is. Okay. So uh, for example, you know, eating cake, we learn all of the reward value that every birthday we go to, you know, you, you get the composite of the cake plus the party, plus the presents and friends and all this stuff. So by the time we're 40, our brain has this uh, idea that, oh, cake is worth this much. You see cake, you eat cake because it's rewarding. Okay. That's why we don't serve cake and broccoli at the same time at dinner because our kids are going to go over the cake instead of the broccoli. So why not tap into this? And I mentioned this piece on the airplane because in our Eat Right Now app, we, we actually could embed a way to test reward value. And the way that that works is the model says that you can either get a positive or a negative prediction error, meaning your, your brain expects something, a behavior to be certain, uh, have a certain reward value, let's say cake. So let's say I see the cake, it looks delicious. I eat the cake and someone has put way too much salt in it, right? And so I eat the cake and my brain says, whoa, this is way too salty. And so I get this negative prediction error because the predicted value is, is much higher than the actual value, okay? And what that does is it updates the reward value of my brain to say, hey, be careful next time you eat cake from whoever made it or that, you know, that bakery or whatever. Okay. We can do the same thing with our own eating habits. So we embedded this tool where we basically had people pay attention as they ate when they used our Eat Right Now app. And we could, my lab could study this. We found that it took as few as 10 or 15 times of people really paying attention as they went through that habitual behavior to really update that reward value where it became lower 
than not, not doing the behavior, right? It was so unrewarding. We can do the same thing with anxiety and worry. So we can ask ourselves when I'm worrying, what am I getting from this, right? That's the simple question we can ask, not intellectually, but dropping into our embodied experience. And we can see that the worry actually drives more anxiety. Okay. So that's step two. That's second gear is to just really see how rewarding something is right now. It's basically about updating the reward value in our brain. So we can, we can do this experientially very simply, and then we can shift into the third step, which is what I think of as the BBO, the bigger, better offer, right? So if our brain has this negative prediction error, that's consistent enough where it sees, oh yeah, that really isn't that rewarding. It's going to say, okay, give me something better. And here's where I love bringing, finding things that are not external because we're going to become habituated to those. So it's not about scrolling through Instagram pictures of cute puppies or something like that, because our brains are like, I get it, you know, give me more, you know, and then we go to puppies and kittens and then puppies, kittens and babies or whatever, you know, it just goes on and on and on. What we can do is bring in something that's naturally rewarding. So my lab has done some research, just looking at different mental states to see which ones are more rewarding. And the long story short is, and you probably, everybody can relate to this, anxiety feels worse than some things like curiosity or kindness or connection, just as examples, right? So it's a no-brainer when we, can have, when we have anxiety, for example, we can start to get curious about what that anxiety feels like in our body. And that's what I was doing with my panic attacks was, you know, I was having these panic symptoms. They were pretty strong and I could just note them. For example, that's a, a practice that comes out of, of Burma, you know, these Theravadan Buddhist practices where it's like, you note, you know, tightness, tension, burning, you know, whatever, but you bring this element of curiosity in with it. And what that does, you can think of this as the, there's this observer effect in physics where if it, by observing, you know, a particle, you're going to affect the results. We can do the same thing in psychology by observing we are less identified with those thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. And that curiosity is what helps us not be stuck to them. So we can get curious, hmm, what does anxiety feel like in my body? And I love the simple question, having people ask, is it on the right side or the left side of my body? Which gets us to do this internal, hmm, I don't know. Is it more on my right side or left side? It doesn't matter. But what that does is it taps into this natural BBO where when in the moment that we're anxious, we can suddenly get to start to get curious about that anxiety itself. We are less identified and we're already bringing in that bigger, better offer. And so we can train ourselves. And I write a lot about this in the book. We can train ourselves to be curious or awaken our natural curiosity. It's, not, it's something that we all have. Man, so that so, was a lot. There's so <laughs> much in there's it. the plan. Oh, man, I, I love that. I, I'm really curious because going through the book, listening to what you have, it sounds to me as if mindfulness or self-awareness can really be a major tool in the fight against anxiety. Is that fair to say? It is. So if you think about these three steps or these three gears, you need to be aware of the habit loop, right? And, and that shares qualities with cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, catch it. You got to be... I, I, aware of whatever's happening. So awareness underlies step one, awareness underlies step two, because we're simply asking, you know, oh, how rewarding is this basically, you know, by asking, what do I get from this? We have to become directly aware of how it is resulting in our, in our embodied experience. Step three, awareness itself, you know, that, that curious attitude imbued in a, in a curious awareness it is in itself the bigger, better offer. So I would say, yes, it is absolutely essential for all three. So it is not, it is the path and it's also the, uh, the solution as well, which is, which is nice because it keeps everything simple, <laughs> you know, just be curious, just be curious. Just be curious. I love it, man. I love it. What, one thing I was going to ask. So when we're being curious, when we're being mindful what would your best advice be for sitting with difficult emotions? If someone's feeling stressed or, or you know, they're feeling a real tightness, what's the best thing they can do to really sit with that difficult emotion? So I would say there are a number of things people can apply, employ. And one, I, there, what, one thing that we need to do is be able to ground ourselves so we can employ these things, right? So if we're freaked out, we're just going to be freaked out. Mm. And as we... So the first thing I would say is we train ourselves 
to naturally be curious, right? That's what I had trained myself for 10 years to do. And then when I started having panic attacks, it, the practices just kicked in, right? So first thing I would say is, is some, you know, simple training. And I like this idea of the way to start any habit is to do the thing over and over. So I think of it as short moments many times. So if we can start to bring ourselves to become, bring ourselves, uh, help awaken our own curiosity, short moments, many times throughout the day, just with regular things where we're in, we're not freaked out, we're not stressed. Mm -hmm. It helps drive that habit of just being curious when anything comes up, okay? So that's the first step is just to, to practice being curious all the time. And I love, I, I write in the book about this you know, kind of tongue in cheek, a mantra, right? You know, so these mantras and, you know, you can pay money for <laughs> mantras and they're, you know, you can't spell them and all this stuff. But what I would say, my favorite mantra is, hmm, <laughs> right? Mm. Don't ask me how to spell that. But we all know what that's like, because when we do that, hmm it actually awakens our natural curiosity because that's, that's this habituated response that we have when we're, somebody asks us a question that we don't know the answer to. And there are, there are different types of curiosity, but basically that hmm, helps us awaken our natural, it's called uh, interest curiosity when we're interested in something. So the first step is to just train this, you know, <laughs> morning, noon, and night all the time to be curious. And it helps us with everything. You know, if we're in an argument with somebody, we're like, Hmm, well, what is their side of things? It really helps us you know, not, you know, not get in fights with our, with our significant others, with our, you know, uh, with our mates at, um, at work and all this stuff. The second step is to really start to apply this in moments when we are anxious. And I mentioned it briefly before, but just training ourselves to be curious in the moment when we're anxious map out those habit loops, and then just bring that curiosity and be like, hmm, what does this anxiety feel like in my body right now? And that's a very concrete thing that anybody can do. I love it, man. I love it. You've been really at the forefront of this for a long time in your TED talk, I think has been out viewed millions of times. Your books are uh, fantastic. I would love to just bring all this uh, talk, which we've done today on anxiety home and say, everything which you've now learned about anxiety, if the person listening now could only tune in for this one bit, what would be one thing about anxiety that you've learned that you would love everybody to know? I would say really get curious about how your mind works so that you can work with your mind and that curiosity will carry you, carry you through every bit that you'll need to know. Amazing, man. I just got two staple questions through left, which we sign off all our podcasts with. The first one is, what books have impacted your life the most? Wow, there are so many. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say from a, so I've, you know, one of the earliest books that I read on mindfulness was really helpful for me. It's called Mindfulness in Plain English by uh, a monk, uh, Bhante Gunaratna, Hanelope Gunaratna. That's actually, you know, people can get free download uh, on the internet or they can buy the hard, you know, hard copy version of it. I think there's a, a newest edition, but there were also some, I just loved, there's a book called The Art of Racing in the Rain, which is a novel written from the perspective or told from the perspective of a dog who had an owner who is an amateur race car driver. And the reason I love this book was because he basically describes this famous real life you know, person, uh, Ayrton Senna, who was a Brazilian uh, Formula One driver who would just crush the competition when it's, well, always, but also even more when it started raining. Because when it started raining, all of the other race car drivers would start to get nervous. Oh no, it's slippery out here. So they would say, oh, no. And he would say, oh, no, <laughs> you know, because he he just merged with his with his environment. And I think that's what we can all learn to do is to be at so much ease with our environment that we can literally get into flow. I actually have a, a module on getting into flow in, in our Unwinding Anxiety app, because I think this is something we can train ourselves to do. Seeing how, you know, life, you know, when we're anxious, we feel contracted. When we're curious or kind or connected with others, we feel more expanded. 
And we can look at those cause and effect relationships and start to just become more aware of when we're contracted, see what is leading to that so that we become disenchanted with it, right? That's that second step update that reward value, and then bring in these bigger, better offers of kindness and curiosity. So that was a long answer to your short question about those books. Um, but that's, that's what I would say. Amazing, man. I love it. My last question for you today, before we tell these guys where they can sign off and these books and anything else you'd like to impart to our audience is what makes a life worth living? Wow. What a great question. Here, I would say... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I would say curiosity <laughs> and kindness, because if we really look at what's rewarding in life, you know, contraction does not feel good expansion where we're, you know, say you're having a really good conversation with somebody that feels amazing. And you can't pay money for that, right? When somebody's truly being authentic, you can't pay money for that. When, when you are truly just curious about something, you can't pay money for that. So, those feel so good being curious and kind. I would say those, those two things, just, just tapping into those and letting those become our new habits. That's, that's absolutely what I would, I would say um, about your question. I love it, man. I love it. What, um, where can our audience connect with you? Can you tell them about the book or anything else you want to impart to our audience? Sure. So I would say the book uh, Unwinding Anxiety is available anywhere books are sold. <laughs> Shameless plug of self-promotion. <laughs> and they, people can learn more about it and about any, any of the other tools that we have. So these apps I mentioned, uh, they're all available. Uh, on my website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. And we also have a bunch of free resources on that uh, website as well. We've got free CME activities for physicians, for healthcare providers, a lot of explainer animations, because I just love to help people understand how their mind works. All of those things are available. So I would say drjud.com, you know, you can learn about the book, you can learn about the apps and everything else that we do. Well, guys, that wraps up a much needed conversation with Dr. Judd. It was a pleasure to have him on the show. It was a pleasure to get his thoughts on what we can do to control and the anxiety and stress in these worrying times so guys whilst you hear all the relevant links are in the description below please feel free to swipe up to check anything out which may be of interest to you we have a healthy wealthy and wise newsletter which is also in the description which goes out once per week uh, if you could consider leaving us a five-star itunes review this really 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 helps us to grow the show and it would really mean a lot to us and the last thing is Guys, don't forget these videos up on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact, for the video interview that I had with Dr. Judd. If you head over there, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for interacting with us. It was a pleasure. We will be back on Monday, as always, for a brand new episode. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then.